and welcome back to the CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Molly Rao, with my co-host, Jessica Rickert. Today's podcast features Katie Gardner. She takes the clinical aspect out of the science of reading and helps us understand how the brain learns while demonstrating specific strategies to help kids crack the code to make meaning while reading. Welcome, Katie. We're so excited you're here. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself? Yes. Hi. Well, uh, thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here. And uh, I, my name is Katie Garner, and um, I have taught in the classroom for, I guess I taught about 20 years before I started working with different classrooms in different states across the country, um, working with different teachers. Um, my background uh, originally was I studied voice and language at, at Juilliard. So not traditionally the path one would take, um, you know, to focus on literacy, but the language connection certainly today is coming in really handy as we're looking at, you know, language acquisition and especially with, you know, phonemic awareness at, at school, we had to study all the languages and um, all the Romance languages. And as a cheat sheet, we learn something called the IPA or the International Phonetic Alphabet. And that really is, is, kind of on par with what speech pathologists look at and study in their coursework. And it's really helpful today, especially as we're looking at um, the code with a new lens and how um, a lot of the code is broken down, how our brain learns to read or how it interprets that code into spoken, you know, spoken sounds. And I think that the background that I had without maybe knowing it at the time, uh, has not only come in handy today, but really put me on a, on a path before the science of reading, which I know we're gonna talk about kind of hit, uh, it put me on a path to really try to connect the code with what makes sense to kids in a way that they did for us in school, having to have all of those languages um, mastered, but needing some common set of symbols or sound connections to make sense of it all and, and streamline it and fast track it. Um, and I think as I, as I went on into school, I decided I wasn't, um, loving the life of traveling and performing. So I studied, uh, education, but I, I, I actually was doing that over the summers as I was in Juilliard. My mom was a teacher, so I'd always loved being in the classroom, but I got my master's eventually in reading. And like a lot of teachers, um, I got absolutely no phonics classes whatsoever, none, nothing. So had it not been for the non-traditional and really not phonics specific focus that I'd had previously, I, other than an alphabet song, I think they sent me on my way. At the time, you know, you get the philosophies, how we think about how we believe we should teach kids to read, but not just when you're locked in a room with a kid, here's how you can get him to read. You know, here's, here's A, B, and C. Here are concrete things you can do to help make this happen for him. So that's really, I guess, what's that on set me on an, a course to be interested in how to just connect these dots for kids, looking at how the brain learns, um, really looking at the brain science in similar to the way that I think we're looking at it now with the science of reading, but, but more than just that, the science of learning. There's so much more than just how we process one, one particular skill set. And I think that's really, you know, up until this point, you know, as I was teaching in my classroom, I was, I was always, of fascinated by this and trying to figure out how to connect 
dots for all learners, how to leave a breadcrumb trail that everyone could follow. And I think the brain science um, specifically on how we learn, emotion-driven learning, um, earlier developing areas in the brain, if you're a primary teacher, knowing what areas are available to you and what areas you could knock on all day long. And until developmental readiness occurs, you're just you know knocking on a door that's not built. Just getting that information and then treating the brain like a chess opponent that if you understand the system by which it learns, you can maximize your time with kids and really milk as much from the instruction that you're providing as possible. So, so that's kind of what led me here. And, and now this year is an exciting year because with the science of reading, I think my big takeaway from it is you can't crack the code without the code. Like to me, that's the resounding message. You need the code to crack the code. Now, you know, making that happen, there's where I think we have so much exploring and, and, and pulling in of other, other ideas and, and um, uh, just pieces of research that are right there and, and easily accessible that can be added to what we've got. So I know that's more than just where I come from, but that's, that's really, I guess, my, my journey and now my focus this year is just really trying to um, look at where we are and take advantage of everything we have to, to get where we obviously are all feeling that we need to go this year and, and on. It's been a crazy year last year, and I think this year is going to be almost as crazy, but just for different reasons. So we'll see, but I'm excited. That is a fascinating background. I mean, that's so cool that you were at Juilliard. That's, I mean, amazing to me. <laughs> um, I think you have a fascinating take on the science of reading. And I know teachers in Colorado were really focusing on that. And I think we're focusing, I feel like we have a very narrow view of the science of reading. So can you kind of dive more into your thoughts about science of reading and not just about phonics instruction? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what's what's really it, it's it's sad, I think, that it had to be a proclamation that we need the code to crack the code. It, having worked with so many states over the last 10 years, it is interesting to see how much or how little emphasis was put on not even the importance of it, but the existence of it in curriculum. I mean, there, you know, were districts that had abandoned anything that had to do with phonics at all. And I don't mean phonics as in workbook slash dash underline. I just mean what letters do when they come together and it's not the plain alphabet. You know, you got the alphabet, everybody knows a song to sing the, you know, but that isn't reading because the alphabet letters by themselves aren't what's happening in real words. You know, in real words, letters come together and all bets are off and they almost never make the sounds they do on the alphabet train. And to just leave that untouched to just have that be a void that you tiptoe around and, and use memorization as a, as, a, as a compensation strategy for not having the skills to actually decode the words. I mean, that, it's, it's a shame that it got to that point to where it now has, has had to become such a mountain um, of, of, I guess, I don't even know what the right term would be for it, not just information we have to learn, but even just of, to, to put it back on the radar in such a strong way. It should have always been on the radar. I think what's helpful with the science of reading is it maps out more of what, what is important when we're looking at all learners. 
The problem is what is important in terms of that structured literacy, that focused approach, that's a, it's, it's a very specific trajectory. And as at one of the mainstays, or I guess one of the most interesting pieces to me is that much of this has come about from really studying early brain development, how we learn to read, what happens in the brain when we learn to read. There were some studies prior to the science of reading really kind of coming on um, the horizon. One was by Bruce McCandless, and it was a Stanford brain study. And it was in 2015, I believe. So it was December 2015, just prior to a lot of us having heard, um, or at least you know, might have heard things about something called reading science or the science of reading, but the term hadn't really been coined. People weren't, you know, engaged in hours of training yet. But this brain study was really looking at something that was fascinating. And we were talking about it back then. It was a key point in my presentations because they were looking at um, neural imaging of students as they were attacking sight words and trying to determine whether or not calling the words versus actively decoding the words uh, prompted a difference in how the brain was um, engaging, what areas were lighting up. In other words, where optimal brain circuitry occurred with decoding or with calling from having memorized words. All they were initially trying to do was give teachers a perspective on where to spend time. Is it better to spend time memorizing words or is it better to really slow down perhaps what sounds like you know immediate recall, but give them the tools to crack multiple words with, with building blocks of the code? And initially that's all they were trying to do, but what they found was not only is optimal brain circuitry occurring when kids actively decode with virtually nothing of any use occurring when kids are um, recalling or memorizing words, but that, that it's occurring on the side, where, where this occurs in the brain, on the left hemisphere versus on the right. And that was something they hadn't expected to find, but it's, it's really been a key kind of point with the science of reading, which is that when kids are memorizing words, that activity is occurring on the right hemisphere. And as we look at struggling readers, kids who have been identified as dyslexic, which presents with symptoms that are similar to a lot of other learning disabilities, you know, working memory deficits, um, auditory issues. So when we look at that, that activity, that engagement of our weakest readers in third, fourth, and fifth is happening when they read on the right hemisphere. So by memorizing words and intentionally doing so, in other words, giving kids in kinder words like how or she or uh, the or um, her, you know, words that if only individual letter sounds are all you know, you can't sound out. Her would be huh, eh, ruh. How would be huh, ah, wa. So the only way you could sound them out is to get the phonics skills, which don't come until second grade, if those are, you know, with the scope and sequence. So we're, we're intentionally having kids memorize words that have phonics skills in them we haven't taught. And by doing so, we're triggering this engagement on the right hemisphere of the brain, which is where we process words we've memorized. And that is the area that we know is, the, is where weak readers um, show engagement when they read. On the, on the contrary, strong readers in third, fourth, and fifth show engagement on the left hemisphere. And the left hemisphere is where we saw engagement when kids were actively decoding words like ow, how, sh, e, she, not just calling them, but really working through them, plowing through them, using the tools they had. And that engagement, not only was there optimal engagement, meaning multiple areas lighting up simultaneously, which shows depth of learning, 
but it was occurring on the side of the brain that, that is where the strong readers need to um, be processing this information. And one of the reasons for that, aside from this, is that that's where we pull information together to make meaning. Because, you know, if you think about even just reading a word like how, 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 you're putting pieces together to come up with something meaningful. And as you look at text and working with text into the upper grades, that's what they're doing. They're reading a passage, putting pieces of information together to, to determine the author's purpose or the, the point of that paragraph or the, you know, the motivation of the character. So on a small scale, decoding individual sounds and then coming up with what the word is by putting those pieces together is like the baby exercise for reading a four page passage, putting all those pieces together and then coming up with the main idea, what that point was of that, of that written argument. So, so all of these things are the reason that we, from this study, could, could see that there was a benefit to doing something this way versus doing it that way. And I think with the science of reading, they're just really fleshing out that information. They're trying to show us what happens when we do it this way, what happens when we do it that way, why we need to do what it is that we're doing and why we really don't wanna do what we've been doing because the outcome is looking like this in a brain, in a brain scan. And that's, I think it's always helpful to go back to the brain, um, you know, especially when you can get a, a neural image, when you can see active areas of engagement. Um, we know that the more areas engaged and the more widespread those areas are, the deeper the learning. So that's inarguable. So seeing that in a tangible, concrete way really gives us a perspective of which direction to go. It doesn't necessarily dictate how to get there. And that's where there's been a lot of, I think, points of argument. You know, Tim Shanahan's come out with some wonderful blog posts, the last couple that he's done, actually. And he's really taken issue with some things that, from a common sense perspective, do seem really perplexing. And, and I was really happy that he called that out, because I think, you know, that's where, you know, we can lump everything into one box and call it all the science. This is all the science. And it, and it there's a lot of, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of science and you have to interpret what 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 it is, and then forge a path that's going to be most effective. And, um, and that's where I guess, you know, as I kind of wrap this little piece up, but that's, that's where I think is the, the, the door I want to keep kind of banging on is, as we're looking at early brain development, and, and from my perspective, that's one of the most important pieces of the science of reading, which is really, again, it just focuses on what we need to do to really take advantage of what we know about the brain, how we learn to read, and, and reach every learner so that we're not just leaving big holes that are um, in our instruction. But I think that early brain development, as we're looking at it, what we're not looking at are our ends, the access points that we have, what we know about what areas are developed and ready to go, the emotional centers, um, how the brain inevitably learns, what drives it, what marks information from memory and prioritize learning in the brain not having a catcher's mitt in place when you teach something, not having a need to know ready, like a file folder to catch it means that you're, you know, if you toss out something nobody asks for, nobody wants, nobody cares about, it's like throwing a ball to an empty field. And I think sometimes when we get very hyper-focused on isolated things that kids don't understand, why, what are they for? What do they do? Why do I need them? You know, that, that horse can't come before the cart or we, we don't reach every child and it, and, and, you know, 
it's just, there's a lot more to be said, I guess, about it, but I love the conversations that are happening. I love the focus on getting teachers to really look at something and decide, you know, if I'm doing it, why am I doing it? You know, what am I basing what I'm doing on? Can I support what I'm doing with anything, you know, at all? And then at least start the conversations there instead of just doing, you know, this kind of mixed assorted methods of, you know, random approaches and pulling it all together and calling it reading because that has left a lot of our kids behind, you know, especially a lot of our kids with special needs and, um, you know, those, those differently wired kiddos that really need to have a strong path forged for that instruction. And I'm clinging a little bit to what you mentioned about Tim Shanahan's blog and just, you know, sort of some of the critical questioning that he's doing. And I was listening to a couple of podcasts yesterday that one was education-based and the other one was something completely different, but they both talked about kind of that idea that when there's science, when there's research, we as, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to call us here, as the people applying that science, we need to be critical of the interpretations because there are different ways to use that information. And so I really like that you brought that up because as classroom teachers, just because someone says, this is what the science means for you in your classroom, I think we should, we should absolutely be using the research and the science because I love that. But truly think about how do you apply that? How do you leverage that? What questions are missing in that research right now that we want to look into? Um, because there, there are so many things that maybe we haven't explored. Maybe we haven't asked the right questions yet. And yes, so yes. that's one thing that I kind of keep in mind a little bit because there are times when we do things as teachers because, oh, this is what we're told. This is what we're supposed to do. And we need to question a little bit. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a pushback kind of person. I live in that realm. But, you know, how do, how is the best, what is the best way for me to apply this for my students right now? Right. So that's kind of where my brain got stuck. But <laughs> Yeah. And, um, and why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, yeah. always being, you're always asking yourself that. Why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, what's the basis for it? Why do I believe that I'm doing this and, and, and not just because page 14 says that I'm supposed to be doing this. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, and that's probably one of the best things, again, that and the fact that you need the code to correct the code are two really great things about this whole movement. But I love that. I think pushing back is key for teachers. I, I mean, I'm sure districts won't like me to say that, but you know, you have to know why you're doing what you're doing or you won't be doing it well, let alone effectively or efficiently. Yeah. I would argue that a good district does want their teachers to think critically and push back, but. Think critically, uh, yes. I'm not sure about the pushback part. <laughs> push I, but, but, yeah. appropriately yeah. the That's proper right. bureaucratic channels. Um, That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right. You know, I'm I mean, a secondary teacher, so the, the you need the code to crack the code like connects with me in a completely different way because the elective that I've taught is computer programming. And I'm just thinking about how often I'll come to help a kid when they're trying to troubleshoot something and they'll have deleted what they tried 
And I'm like, how can I help you troubleshoot it if you went, oh, that didn't work and you deleted it? No, we have to see it so we can actually figure out like what's not working here. Um, and so I know that's a little bit off on a tangent, but no, it's kind of the same it idea. Is. Like, we have to see mm-hmm. the stuff in order to think through it and process it and figure it out and make it work. Right, right. And 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 I think the interesting part too is, and and this, and I'll talk about it as we kind of get a little bit more into it, but you know, teaching kids to think should always be the underscore of all subject area instruction. So you've got those two things happening at the same time. Yeah, I mean, yes, we're learning math or we're learning science or we're doing, you know, poetry, but we're thinking through it, not in off, you know, we're not in an off position and the teacher can't be either. Like the teacher can't just teach the lesson on page 14 to 17 with the brain in the off position. You've got to be thinking about the thinking so that there's always a critical critical thinking playground underneath the content because the content's almost just like a a vehicle to exercise your critical thinking, you know? And then hopefully as you're doing this, you're picking up a deeper understanding of that content because it's filtering through this analytical problem solving, you know, accounting for these holes or, I mean, you're, you're really actively engaged with it. It's not a rote thing. And if it is, it's really not going to be kept. The other issue is our kids who aren't going to have support at home, anything that's rote or that's not really able to be thought through isn't, isn't going to be owned in a way they can keep it, you know, and that's, and that's on a bigger scale, always an issue, but on a scale with reading, it's a huge issue. We've seen it this year, phonics by default, letters and sounds, there is no logical, meaningful explanation why cases cut. It just does. And if you study different languages, you see different symbols and sometimes you see the same symbol and it makes a different sound. So it's a man-made academic principle. It's not scientific law. You know, gravity, it's easy. You drop the pen, it falls. You drop the lamp, it falls. You hold up Susie and say, what if I drop Susie? She's going to fall. So kids don't have to practice that. It, it makes sense. It, it's, a, it's a pattern that connects with existing patterns that the brain already has, has acquired. And so by default, you cheat. It doesn't have to go through the use it or lose it because it's already there. So it glues to what you already understand about that. But with letters and sounds and phonics patterns, because there's no logical way to just have meaning and and a quick, oh, I get it, it requires repetitious practice. And we got a lot of kids who aren't going to have that opportunity outside of the classroom to get the, the, the level of repetition. You know, some kids need a lot more repetition than others do to really own a concept. And if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. And that's just the way the brain works. So having an analytical piece to everything you're teaching, giving kids a breadcrumb trail through which they can make logical deductions. And this is what I like to do with phonics. I mean, bringing it all back to behaviors, behaviors kids already understand because it's their behaviors. So that when they look at letters and what they do when they get together, there's a most likely and next most likely and if all else fails and it follows an alignment of their own behavior. You know, I mean, I can give some different examples, but it, it can be as simple as, as literally, you know, for instance, kids at the beginning of the line, they all know to look like an angel. You put a kid at the front of a line and he's like the line leader fallen from heaven. He's quiet. I mean, it's the best way to take your, you know, your more uproarious one and turn him into a perfect little model by saying, Johnny, would you be the line leader today? He all of a sudden adopts a presence that you wish you could bottle and keep for the rest of the day. Now on the flip side, you've got the back of the line right? And if anything's going to go wrong, it's going to happen back there because they know they're far enough away that they can get away with all kinds of stuff before you're going to turn around and notice. 
you can use that construct to know the sound Y is most likely to make based on whether he's at the beginning or the end of the line. I call him sneaky Y. And basically when he's at the beginning of a line, he gets gonna do just what he should. He's gonna make, when he's at the beginning of a word, he does just what he's supposed to. Yell, yes, you, yak, 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 yak. It's only when he's at the end that he's gonna be sneaky. Now what he does, you know, there's a secret about what he did and he has these, you know, he, he doesn't like his sound and he thinks yuh is really ugly. So he snuck into the closets of these superhero vowels because they have the power to actually make a different sound, which is their own name. And he took one of each of their capes. So now whenever he's at the end of a word and he doesn't think anybody's watching, that's when I wear them. He has an E cape and an I cape. So he can say words like mommy or candy or daddy or sky or July. But when he's at the beginning of a word, he won't even try it. He just does what he should. Yep, yep, yell yes, you, yak. It's so important that kids not wait until the end of second grade to understand that because the calendar is gonna kill them every day. They're gonna see words like July, February. And I didn't even tell you about E-Y-A-Y because that's not sneaky Y, that's E-Y-A-Y. -Y. I don't know if I have a picture of them or not, but they're just too cool. So they always stick up their thumbs like Fonzie and go, hey, but that's not sneaky Y. That's E-Y-A-Y because -Y, it's not Y by itself that can do that. So kids are armed then with these best betting odds for Las Vegas to come to a word, any word, not words they've memorized, any word with a Y in it, roll up their sleeves and tinker with it, figure it out. And they can do it at five, at five, not at the end of second grade when it's taught as positional sounds of Y phonics skill, because that's two, that's three years of the brain being hit with patterns that are contradicting the one sound that in K and first, the kids are being taught, which is Y says, yo, yo, yeah, 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 but it never does. It never does. The minute we finish that song, we go to our calendar and blow it back. Because literally every word on that calendar shows the letter Y doing everything except that sound. So these kinds of things are just like setups for early grade teachers. We fall into these traps where we're forced to unreinforce what we're trying so hard to teach, which unfortunately starts with just individual letter sounds that are the least likely sounds letters make in real words. You know, I love the T example too, because we'll tell kids T says turtle, but it never does. You pick up any book, you look at any page and on every single line, there is a T and it's not saying T, it's saying because of the words like this, they, them, those, that. So why is that on first grade scope and sequence? You know, the brain is a pattern making machine. The only way it can thrive, its whole system for learning is to identify patterns and then try to connect them with those that it already has. And if everything it sees contradicts the one thing the teacher's trying to teach, it's gonna take longer to teach the T. So it's harder to go slow, I think. Well, not I think, I know. It's harder to go slow with the code. So, you know, what we, I think that's where I think the extra piece of the brain science is so handy as we look at science of reading is there's more to early brain development. Social and emotional connections are, are are so highly developed before the higher level executive functioning centers even started to make connections for early learners. You know, we're knocking on that door, the higher level processing executive functioning center to teach these sound symbol relationships. That door is just not built for a lot of kindergartners. I mean, it's, it's not fully developed until mid twenties, but the brain develops back to front. That's the last area to develop. One of the earliest areas to develop is the social feeling based connections, these, this affective learning, how it feels when no one plays with you, how it feels when it's your birthday and you get to wear the crown, you know, how it feels when, you know, you're, you're embarrassed because you're standing next to a boy that you have a crush on, or when you're going to be sneaky at the end of a line, or when you have to do what your teacher says, because she's right there, 
but when she's further away, maybe you don't. Like how it feels to get hurt and say, ow! All these things that kids understand before they even come to school, or that if you don't speak English, we share this human universal connection that is our emotional responses and, and feeling-based um, understanding, these universal experiences and understanding that are rooted in our emotional domain. These are our ends. They're our common denominators. And to stop short of looking at that as we look at early brain development, I think is a horrible thing because it's like the courtroom. You want the whole truth, you know, not just the truth, but the whole truth. So why stop when we look at this earlier developing area of the brain? Why not take advantage of what that is? The emotional drive that really is everything when it comes to what, what prompts our brain to seek out patterns and to problem solve and to deduce and to think through. It, it, it gives every kid a seat at the table. And as Tim Shanahan mentioned, although it was in a different context, you do lessen the load on working memory when things make sense. You don't have to memorize what makes sense. So now you can use what makes sense to actually attack the problem, as opposed to where a lot of our kids who are dyslexic get caught up in the weeds, which is I have to remember this skill so I can then apply it to figure out this word that's also got some of these other phonic skills that I have to remember too. And they just don't have a counter space big enough to hold all the plates. And so things fall and they get caught up between maintaining track of both or all of the pieces. If you can reroute some of these skills by putting meaning where there wouldn't be, being sneaky and aligning existing knowledge with this new skill content, then you cheat. You get to take advantage of everything that anchors that for the new skill. And I'm gonna show you one more example because I just love this one. Kids have all been in a car. Most kids have been in a car. And we've all been in a car when it stops fast and you're like, ah! so if you don't even speak English, if you tell kids, you know, I like to say it in a fun way, but you know, ER, IR, and UR love to go driving in cars, but they're terrible, awful, horrible drivers. And they always slam on the brakes and go, ah! you don't have to know my words in English to get that, like to, to get what I'm saying. And it's so wonderful to see kids of all different language backgrounds that don't even know these letters, don't even know what they're called, but still be able to look at this and go, ah! that's a sound to speech, that's a speech to print connection. They don't know what it's for yet. They may not be ready to apply it yet and say, oh, look, there are the letters that go er in the word, er, her. but they could look at the letters and see them on the wall without knowing their names and still go, ah! like you can connect where they are with what they will need and front load it and use these earlier developing centers to start incubating what, yes, are skills, but they don't have to go in as skills. You know, that's the, that's the secret sauce there. They don't have to go in as a skill. They can go in and ride the wave of everything we know about that. Like, you know, Forrest Gump used to say, that's all I know about that. Kids know a lot about that. Not the letters, not the R-controlled vowel pattern, but they know about and they love doing it. And it takes multi-sensory instruction to a whole nother level because it's not just see it, say it, do it. It's feel it, feel it, get kids to feel something. And, and the challenge can be great when you're looking at abstract formulamatic data like phonics or like algebra. You know, Mary Helen Imordino Yang is one of my favorite um, researchers and her whole scope of work is uh, neuro, it, well, her, her whole kind of premise is it's neurobiologically impossible for kids to think deeply about things they don't care about. 
And she's actually a middle to high teacher mainly. So she focuses on things like algebra, um, you know, things, the table of elements, things that like phonics can seem very abstract and alien and not connected to anything that you understand. So how to make it so, how to make that bridge so that kids who don't have a way in otherwise, you know, they're, they may not have rep, they may not have support at home for reading. They may not have books at home. They may not have English spoken at home. They may not have a home. You know, a lot of us have worked with kids who have foster, they're in foster care, so or a homeless population. So to have that be their only way in is a very unlevel playing field with things like reading, because phonics is a, a repetitious use it or lose it based skill set. But it doesn't have to be if we look at the brain science, take advantage of brain plasticity, rewire what actually can engage. You can't make this, the feeling-based networks engage if you teach our controlled vowels. It won't happen. But you can if you talk about how these letters are such terrible, awful drivers and they always go, or how T and H don't get along. And every time they get together, they go, that's why they're not allowed to sit together. But they don't listen any better than you two boys, who, by the way, I've split up four times already. Now, every kid in your class could tell the sub, they can't sit together. And they will, too. Like the next day, if they try it and the sub's there, Every kid in the class will tattle on them and explain why they can't, what their punishment is, what you're supposed to do. These are their tattling centers. This is their strong network. Using that to manipulate these skills means we can fast track everything. And we can give those kids who don't have a practice base door to go through another way to make sense of things, another way to understand and own things so that then they can start reading things outside of our class just because they, they see billboards and road signs and lunch menus and everywhere they look, there's sounds that make sense to them. Look, her, 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 I can read that word. It's fun to see that kids don't know what they can read until it starts to come together, but they can't do that if all they have are individual letter sounds in kindergarten. Then it's her, They ha it takes two to tango. They need to know the sounds of letters individually and also what they do when they get together. And if they don't have both, they can't do anything, literally can't do anything. So these are the kinds of things that I think it, it is so important that the science of reading is spotlighting. But I think, again, there's this whole dimension of how it's going to happen. What's going to make it doable for teachers? We've got kids eating their shoe and licking the carpet. You know, trip thongs and digraphs and nasalizations and fricatives are not terms that they are going to connect with. And, and I think even for teachers, it's intimidating and it's scary because once they get over the hurdle of what it all is, then they have to think, okay, how in the world am I supposed to teach it to my kids who don't even know who they are? And, and I think it can frighten everybody. It doesn't have to, you know, that's again, that's the importance of the brain science. So seeing Tim Shanahan come out and really try to, to make some bridges for teachers, seeing um, shifting the balance um, uh, is a great book as well. Um, and seeing how that is well, it's trying to, again, connect teachers with ways to, to really make this happen. And it's forcing the conversation toward um, other aspects of the brain science that are going to help this, this um, momentum of focus on phonics, not hurt. So it, it shouldn't be a war. It, it can't, because these two things have to work together to make it happen. You know, and if they start to become at odds, which you see in some Facebook groups, you do see a lot of back and forth. And it's as if these little pieces that are all supposed to move in the same direction, they're going against each other. 
and they aren't, they're going to fuel each other in a good way. That's how that's, that's how it's going to happen. But I think, you know, it can't be a my way or the highway interpretation. It just can't be. And hopefully it won't be. Hopefully this isn't like the reading wars because it's going to be opening up and, and pulling in more of what we now have that's it's science now. It's, we are, we're in such a different place now than we were back then where really philosophies were all we studied. I mean, that's all we had to study and to go by. We didn't have, you know, brain scans. We didn't have, you know, concrete pictures to show the depth of learning that had occurred based on different presentations. So I don't think we could devolve back. I hope, I hope we can't because yeah, that was a horrible time. And I went to school, like where I got, that was the right, I was getting my master's. It felt like right in the aftermath of it. And um, it was, it was not good. So hopefully, you know, the science is going to keep us on a pretty consistent path. And I mean, the brain science, by the way, not, not the reading science, the brain science, which is where the reading science I think is, is, would be emanating from. So I don't remember the question at this point. I'm sorry. I just talked. So. <laughs> it just kept going on. I'm very passionate about this. So <laughs> very clearly. Well, and you know, me not being a reading teacher, um, you know, sometimes I sit in these conversations, you know, you threw out three words there that you're like, this is even hard for teachers to connect with. And I'm sitting here going, yeah, I don't know what any of those words mean. Those <laughs> ones, not, like I've heard some of them, but haven't explored them. But thinking about, you know, you've, you've brought in connections about other pieces in terms of the science. So some of the emotional stuff. Um, and so I guess my question for you is what, and kind of connecting to something I said earlier, what is, what is your feeling about what's missing right now? And things that, you know, as teachers, you know, maybe we, we, we can't take brain scans in our classroom, but places we should be thinking about and maybe exploring in the sort of action research ways that we can explore the things we should be wondering about and in the places we can maybe pushing for research. You know, what's missing right now, in your opinion? You know, it's to me, what's really missing is just, again, you know, there, uh, some of what we, some of it's obvious, you know, so part of it's just what's missing is common sense. You know, like there's certain things that um, are just obvious. So when you look at them, like it, it, it seems obvious that a five-year-old isn't ready to hear about trip bones, dip bones, fricatives, and nasalizations. That's just obvious. It seems obvious that if you have, let's say, an articulation sound wall, which means you've got 45 mouth pictures on your wall, all in differing positions with lips and tongues, you, if you see labels over those that say fricative, nasalization, diphthong, trip, what, what are those labels for? Are they for, they can't be for the kids. Because if the kids could read the word diphthong and triphthong, then they wouldn't need to see the mouth in the opposition or the if position, right? So, so some of it should be kind of an easy interpretation. And again, Tim Shanahan's second to latest blog really shines a light on that to say, you know, we get, we get what this is for, but I would argue personally, like it's much easier for a kid to instantly have a sound pop out of his mouth when he sees this and goes, then if you had a picture of a mouth going, right? Because there's so many problems with that. Now I'm not cutting on mouth pictures. I think they've served a really great purpose this year where mouths are covered with masks. So it's hard for kids to see. 
And I always feel like you've got your tool set. So there are a lot of things that you can pull out. If you've got those pictures, that's great. It's just that like the labels were what pushed me over the edge because I, I thought if, is the label for the teacher to remember it's a nasalization versus a fricative? I don't feel like things on the wall are for teachers. Things in a book maybe are for the teacher or a sticky note, but on the wall, it, it calls out the kids and says, hey, look at me, this is important. I'm an anchor for you. Um, and I think having external ways to anchor information is really important for early grades because they don't have a lot of connections yet. Neural pathways are still developing. So for them to hold on to everything, it's not, it's not easy. And so anchors become vital. That's their external way of, of tracking and, and borrowing that access until it does become part of their internal, you know, neural pathway system. But until that time, they're reliant. Like we are on our sticky notes or on our, you know, we have our phone, we can put in reminders on our phone. They don't have that. So these anchors are critical. And I think mucking up the area sometimes so that they can't make sense of it or use something efficiently or effectively, um, or maybe it's not the straightest path to what you're actually trying to do. So I think separate from like what extra research needs to happen right now, I think a lot of what we need to do right now is just look at what common sense having been in a classroom, and I don't mean make calls about how we're gonna teach, you know, I, I don't mean question what the, the, the bigger picture points are. Like, well, maybe we still don't need to teach phonics. I'm still not convinced we need to. I don't mean questioning. Those are, are accepted pieces, especially when we look at decoding versus memorizing. I would have argued that common sense should tell you shouldn't be memorizing words, right? Because I mean, you want the building blocks. We always want the least common denominators because we can make the most with that. If we own that, the, like, what was another one? If we own, let's say the ow sound, we can read how and now and about and flower and cow and around. I mean, there's no end to what we could thousand, but if all we know is the word now, because, and think of the blood, sweat and tears you have to put in in kindergarten to flash that flashcard 45 times to get the kid to remember. And if nobody does that over the summer, it's gonna be gone. But if you give him a key and it's, it's not a new key, they play rough, someone always gets hurt and says, ow. And flying overhead is superhero. Oh, these are all time favorite superhero. And anytime um, he flies by, they'll stop what they're doing and go, oh, oh, oh. And that's important for a default. Slow, low, low, low. But you're giving them power when you give them the building blocks of the code, however you give them, whether it's with a mouth picture that looks like this, which I would say is confusing, but, but let's say you have that. Whatever your path is to give them that power, they need that power. So these are kind of, key points, but how you make those things happen, that's where I think that common sense can come into play. Accepting that this is correct, that we shouldn't be memorizing what we can read. Um, then looking at what your kids are doing and what you know as a teacher and looking at what you're using, what's on your wall? You know, Do you have a bunch of stuff on there that's for you? Um, or is it real? I mean, the critical importance of knowing that the, the connections that they have I was just speaking at, um, I was on a panel for the, the learning disability, the, the national LDA conference. And I cannot remember the name of this particular person, which I'm so sorry I can't because her whole focus was the, the, how these pathways, and, and you know this, but thinking about it helps to really solidify it. That, you know, as the brain develops, these connections are obviously still forming and they're very few and far between. And for some of our kids at the earliest grade levels, they're non-existent. If they're not, talked to on a regular basis. You know, a lot of kids are talked at and not to um, if they've, you know, got maybe a lot of brothers or sisters or parents are working or gone. And 
So a lot of kids have virtually no connections when they enter school. And when you keep that in mind, you are giving them access to connect with information by putting something in a place where they can find it and use it with ease. And to, to be mindful of, of the fact that your room isn't about you, but it's really about that. And so sometimes I'll see things and it, you know, you can just tell there's a disconnect with what the research that we do have tells us, because you'll see things about, you know, I want earth tones. If it's not earth tone, it's not coming in my classroom, you know, strange things like it's a baby's nursery and, and it's not about you. You know, it's not about it. it we have kids and they have needs and some kids have bigger needs than others. And we're the only way that, that we're their only, we're, we're it, we're the door that they're either going to get through or not. And if we can make that door more accessible and more inclusive, wider, taller, maybe even put some suction power behind it. So if they just get curious, they'll end up being pulled through it, whether they want to do or not, not make the door so narrow and so small so that only the small few know exactly how to comport themselves to get through. You know, that's our job as teachers. And, and we don't really have to look hard for these cornerstones of these pieces of research on learning. I mean, they're right there in every form and fashion with all these examples used. But just, just taking that in would be helpful. And I wish part of this momentum that is coming with the science of reading could pull a lot of this along with it, because there is a big spotlight on it now. There's a lot of funding tied to it right now. Folks are, it's, you know, the Titanic turned slowly, but in this instance, the Titanic's turned pretty fast. Like it's actually moving at a pretty good rate. So why not take advantage of pulling in these other pieces that are so perfectly aligned with the objective, which is how we can teach all kids how to read, but not just how to read, how to learn. And in, in doing that, it's also how to learn to read. You know, you're always better off when you follow the brain system for learning. You never wanna take on the brain as an opponent because you will lose or you'll kill yourself trying. And, and that's where I do see a little bit of a contradiction there. I see a lot of the approach that is focused on being, I won't say contradictory, but it's not making it easy for the brain to do what it naturally does, which is pattern out information in a logical way, using deduction and reasoning, critical thinking, problem solving, and taking advantage of what we know all of our kids already have as a common denominator which are these social and emotional feeling-based connections we all share. And they're earlier developing kids with dyslexia, kids with kids who from Yugoslavia, every, whether you're five or 50, we share these commonalities and that's our in, not just for phonics, but, but absolutely for phonics, but for, for so many things. So that's what I would really like to see. I think from a research piece, there is a great conference. It's, um, it's either, it, sometimes it's on the West Coast and on the East Coast, it depends. And sometimes it's on both, but it's called um, the uh, Learning in the Brain Research Consortium. And um, I got, I had the privilege, I got to speak there one year and Mary Helena Mordino Yang was actually there as well. I spoke on the, it was at the Harvard campus, but it was at MIT that was housing it. And it's a meeting of the minds with the researchers and the practitioners. So they don't presume to tell you what to do with what they've learned. It's a discussion situation. So the researchers come and say, look, we were, you know, doing brain imaging on cancer patients, or we had students, we had kids who had a hemispherectomy and we had to exercise part of the language center, but look what happened. Like when we did this, look what happened. The area that's supposed to process numbers and math 
it's processing language now. You know, look at these connections. Look how it rewired itself. And that means if you've got kids with weak connections, you can circumvent areas that maybe are slower to come on board or not as developed or maybe auditory issues that are going to be real landmines in your path for instruction. You can feed it in a different door. You just have to know how to trigger engagement in those areas. You know, this, this child had a hemispherectomy, so we didn't have to work to trigger it. There was no other option over here. But if we know that this is a potential capability, how can we play with the delivery? Like, for example, wrapping a skill in a social emotional disguise. You know, everything I just was giving you these examples of, but then there's one in particular I was going to see if I could find. Everything that we're, these, these letters are in love. They have a crush on each other. Every time they get together, A and U, A and W, they're in little hearts, since I know people can't see the picture, but anytime they're together, they get so embarrassed, they put their heads down and say, ah, like in the word August. So if you wrap up a skill with an emotional cloak, you trigger the area of the brain that responds to that connection. And that's where it can be stored until the higher level processing centers are ready to pick it up and apply it. But everybody gets to have it. And you as the teacher get to do what you're already doing, which is just using it when you look at the word August on the calendar, because you're going to look at the word August on the calendar. And if you try to read it with the kids and you say, look, guys, let's read this word August, then you're a big liar because you were just singing your alphabet song five minutes ago and you pointed to the identical capital A, but you said, A says apple, ah, ah, ah. but it can also say acorn, A, A, A. And then you walk five feet to the left, point to the same capital A and say, August. So if anybody's paying attention, there's no breadcrumb trail there. Like you've left the brain in the dust and you don't have to, if you can pattern it out. Oh, they're the, the letters that are in love. See the little heart around the A, you, that's because we have to remember those letters have a crush on each other. So it's an, if not, then this, that's the brain system for learning. It's not, it's not, um, it's, it's not a, uh, what's my right word that I'm looking for. It's not rule exception, rule exception. It's always a most likely, next most likely, hierarchy of likelihood is how we make choices every day. We don't say, you know, if we can't park in the front, I'm gonna park around back. If I can't get a spot there, I'm gonna go to the side. If all else fails, I'm going home, I'll call an Uber. We don't pull up and say, oh no, I can't park here. What will I do? Like that doesn't happen. We've got to back up before we even think through it. We think through things, we pattern things out, logical deductions. This doorway is accessible to all kids. If kids have a way to get in that aren't gonna learn a skill because they practiced it, but they're learning it because it makes sense, then the practice comes in the form of now let's use it to read, let's use it to write. Because we're doing that all day long anyway. That doesn't even take effort. We're already reading and writing all day. We're just not acknowledging that kids at the earliest levels have nothing to read and write with because the phonics code is spread across three grade level years and the bulk of it's taught in second grade, which means K and one are working blind. And some states have kids memorizing 300 sight words before they're allowed to get to second grade. They have to be proficient with 300 sight words. And when you just think about the developmental readiness aspect, the kids who need to be moving, engaging, socializing, connecting with other kids, they're the ones who are stuck in the chair the longest, having words flashed in their face at recess, at centers, all day, because nobody else is doing it at home. So they're losing out on what they need. They're getting something that's going to disappear as soon as summer's gone. And and, and it's all their instructional time geared toward training an actor with cue cards instead of actually giving the building blocks for him to walk home and see things that look familiar anywhere there's text. You know, text is everywhere and patterns, these building blocks are inside of it. If you can teach in a way that's non-conscious, 
teach so kids can't help but learn, so they can't turn it off. Then our reading block extends across the entire day into the night, and and it's it's just um, it's um, exponential. So I think, and that's all coming from the power of the brain science. Everything I just said is what happens when you just open up the box a little bit more and dig a little bit deeper into what we know about the brain, how the brain learns, not just learns to read, how the brain learns, and what areas are our common denominator access points. That's where you get equity in education for kids with special needs, for kids with language backgrounds, for upper grade kids who need holes plugged fast and teachers who don't have the ability to be an expert in phonics to do it. You know, you get, you get a doable um, and yet highly efficient and effective way to start leveling that playing field, which is ultimately our goal for all of us. That's, that's the goal that we all have. And that cultural responsive teaching that we mentioned, I mean, if you really look at the, the common threads between neuroscience and culturally responsive teaching, it's really exactly what I'm saying. It's just called by a different name, but it's the same idea. We all have a brain. The brain is a system for learning. If you work within that system, you're always going to be on the best path to include and pull in the most folks. So you can call it, you know, whatever the name might be, but it's a key point for learning and, and cultural inclusivity is what we want for, for all, for everyone, not even just cultural, but, you know, kids with these learning styles that are not just on par with the norm, giving them a way in, uh, it's everybody. So it's just, and it's, it's interesting. It's a really fascinating conversation. I, I just hope that that, I just hope that the focus on the brain can expand and open. And I think there are a lot of people starting to beat that drum. And I think, and I hope that um, we can take this wave that we're all riding, pull these pieces into it, and then get, squeeze and milk the value out of all of that, instead of just a piece of that. It'll be valuable across the board, not just to beef up the focus of what science of readings for and the value of it and its effectiveness, but in teachers' confidence in how they can actually make this come to life in their classrooms and make all of their other teaching, you know, start to come to life because this is a thread for teaching anything. I mean, you know, this runs through all that you're doing all day long. These are just core, core pieces of good teaching, you know, and, and the research is right there. Well, and you kept mentioning some of those emotional systems, and I don't know if you're familiar with Jock Hanksep's work at all. No, no okay. that is okay. So he did some research on emotional systems, and actually Temple Grandin has done some similar similar research. So, like she's talked about the blue ribbon emotions, which are kind of connected with her, his work. So for teachers, she might be somebody they're a little more familiar with, but. Um, and I can't remember all the names of the different systems, but like he talks about like triggering a seeking system and, you know, using sort of that curiosity and that want to know. And that reminds me of what you had mentioned kind of earlier about that if I wrote it down here somewhere, but, you know, basically if they're not, if they don't care about it, they can't think deeply about it. You had mentioned that as a quote from one of the individuals you were referencing. And so I was thinking about the seeking system. And then also um, one of the systems he talks about, he calls it rage, fear, rage, panic. And, you know, there's been some criticism of that name because really he took like the most extreme name 
Right. Because really it's like a frustration system. Right, and so just right. thinking about as I'm teaching, how can I set up my lessons to avoid triggering that system? Because that's going to block learning. Mm -hmm. How can I trigger seeking system so that I can engage learning and just thinking about being more aware of some of these emotional systems and how we can use them as educators. And then as you continued to talk, my brain shifted to some other research. What was it? Now I've lost it. I got stuck on pink set. Um, well, on what, well, you, on what you said, said for, for my brain, my brain. <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned um, triggering that curiosity and, you know, a, a kind of layman term is just the need to know triggering the nobody has a need to know what a case is. But if you want to write, you know, Katie, a note, now I need to know what the case is. Fostering a need to know, it doesn't have to be willy-nilly instruction or, you know, because it's gotten a bad, I think it's it's been like a baby in a bathwater throwout with incidental teaching. And, and that isn't what it is. The need to know is what drives everything we do. It's what drives everything we want to seek out. And the need to know primes the brain for what you're about to say. It, it's fascinating because it actually, it's the, the, the two things that are most and it were most important to me or that I really stress in when we talk about this is, you know, when you can teach to a need to know what you're, what you're saying, that information, that content that you give to a learner that has a need to know is marked for memory and prioritized learning in the brain. So it's like, it's going down a different chute and you don't have to say it 10 times. You get the bang for the buck having said it once, but it's because by triggering the need to know first, you've put the equivalent of a catcher's mitt in the brain, like a file folder for it to live, even if it didn't exist before. The trick is our intellectually curious kids are the ones who already know a lot, which is why they have a need to know. If you don't know what you don't know, you don't have a need to know anything because you don't even know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> so that's where it gets fun because you can play and cheat with ways to trigger needs to know that aren't academic. One way is, and this was talked about in Shifting the Balance, and it's a huge focus in what I talk about, a secret. Secrets make things important to kids. If it's a secret, by default, you're not supposed to have it. And human nature dictates that anything is scarce, like toilet paper, for instance. What did we all want? Toilet paper. Why? Because we couldn't get it. <laughs> and whatever we're not able to get, all of a sudden, that's what becomes worth seeking out. So secrets, by default, are things you're not supposed to have, which by then default, we have a need to know. So secrets are a way to cheat. Extreme body gestures trigger a need to know because our brains have a survival mechanism that requires us to account for something out of the norm. You know, the brain attends to anything novel. They, they say the brain loves novelty, but what it really means is it can't help but attend to a strange sound, you know, or anything that's out of the norm sparks instant need to know. And the real reason is like, is everything okay? What's going on? Do I need to call an ambulance? Is she okay? Oh, no, she's just crazy. She's not, you know, I, it's, it's a fascinating thing, but what What's really important is it triggers about a five second window of heightened, alert, focused attention. And in that five second window, whatever you say will be marked for memory and prioritize learning. Now, if you go into the Pythagorean theorem with your five-year-olds, you've lost your purpose for triggering a need to know. But if you can connect, you can use the time that you trigger or engage by, gift, by connecting something that goes with what they already understand, it will never disappear. So for example, if you use that time when you trigger their attention to say, you know, like, where's my, I want to show my little tongue. Not that anybody can see it, but you guys, but if you tell them about, you know, the kids that aren't supposed to sit together and we have two letters just like that. And they always go, if you can connect in that time frame, 
with what they already understand. It's already in their pattern network. They've got experience with it. Now they own it. But if you don't trigger the need to know first, if you just pull out the workbook page on the digraphs and you do page 17 and you talk about the TH, which by the way, would not be introduced until first grade fall, sometimes winter. And then you proceed to talk about the word list with this, they, them, those, that. Where was the need to know? Who got triggered? Who's even listening to me right now? Surely not on hell who doesn't speak English because to him, I, I never sound like I'm worth listening to because he's not even able to understand what I'm saying. Not the kid who doesn't know what a T is, let alone an H, he's not listening, or the kid who lost his workbook. There's a bunch of kids who never even tuned in because I didn't give them a reason to. But if you trigger their, their need to know, either there's a secret, there's a secret about these letters you don't know, or with a body gesture or an extreme vocal inflection, something that's going to cause them to give you the attention. And then you feed that non-conscious learning. Non-conscious learning is what happens when we, you know how you, you find out something that you didn't want to know and it's stuck in your head and now you can't get rid of it. Maybe like something you heard about, you know, your neighbor and you're like, oh, I wish I didn't even know that. Like just whatever things that you learn by default, you didn't ask for them. It just ended up that now, you know, and you're stuck with that information. That's what teaching. So they can't turn it off means giving them these non-conscious deliveries of what are really high powered skills, but are, are coming at them in a non-threatening feeling already understood way through a back door. Maybe they don't even know what a TNH is. They don't have to. The neat part is they could look at this and guess what sound they can instantly connect to this pattern, even without knowing what a T or an H is. And that's what the science of reading is. It's the connection of speech to print. It's instant and automatic ability to connect sounds to print so that kids can work both ways. They can see a symbol and make a sound or they can hear a sound and identify the symbol they need to put it down on paper. That's the whole goal of the game. But to do that, you got a couple of different ways. You can practice it and practice it and practice it as a repetitious, isolated, abstract phonics skill. And then hope when you introduce the next one, this one doesn't disappear. Or you can cheat and glue it to something that's already got a thousand connections that are going to anchor it. Like I stick my tongue out at my brother and he always sticks his tongue out at me and I don't like him and he's not supposed to really do that in class, right? And all these things that they bring to the table are going to hold this in place. If I teach it on workbook page 14, I got to build all those connections by doing repetitious practice before they can even use it. And that's really the end of the day. That's the most beautiful part. They need it now. They don't need it in first grade. They need it on day one of pre-K. Even before they know what the letters are, T is no more important than TH. It's a puzzle. A, the code is a puzzle. And a puzzle is no fun unless you have all the pieces. And the sooner you get more pieces, the more fun you have playing with it. Who wants to play with half a puzzle? Nobody. As a matter of fact, teachers are hoarders, right? But the one thing we don't throw away, no matter what, I'm sorry, take that back. We don't throw anything away. But the one thing we will throw away, almost every teacher will throw it away, is a puzzle missing a lot of pieces. Because what do you do with that? Like, you can't put that in a center. You can't make kids sit there and start putting something together, knowing that 30 pieces of the hundred aren't there. You would never, what's the point? There's no purpose to it. It won't come together to mean anything. And that's how it can feel, I think, when we divvy out the code in these bits and pieces in such a slow way so that there's no transfer to the reading and writing they're doing all day long. We have these opportunities to make it this easy to give it to them now so they can use it to read that word, to write that word, use it to make us make sense as we're showing them all these words. Why would we not do that? Why would we wait? There's no reason to. There's no harm in a story. And stories also are the great equalizer. Stories are how we think. 
You know, they're how we learn, they're how we connect with each other. Stories are also the fastest and easiest way to trigger social and emotional engagement, which is fascinating too. But if you've taught long enough, you know that if you directly tell a kid or your class, you need to be nice to each other at recess, I saw terrible treatment of, oh, it goes like this. But if you read like the rainbow fish and you talk about in the story about how sad the fish was because, you know, he was trying to help other fish and they were ignoring him and you can get kids in tears on the rug by reading a story and taking them through in first person, because that's how we respond to a story. We become part of everything and we feel it as it's happening, as if we're there. It's, it's, that's a whole nother area of the science that's fascinating. If you look at the neuroscience on how we respond when we're given information versus when we're a part of the story in which it's shared, and we actually see the engagement happening as if we were doing it instead of the type of engagement that you see that's tertiary where we're just thinking about doing it. Obviously, the more areas engaged and the more widespread the areas, the deeper the learning, the more impactful that is. And so stories are another great way in. Not crazy random stories about our barbs and anteaters, but stories that we already know, stories that drive our behavior every day, the frameworks of understanding and decision-making that we, that we use every day as our, as our kind of our compass or our guideposts. Like those are our common denominators, our human framework of understanding. And to me, it's just the most powerful thing of all. I wish it had more of a presence in all kinds of learning, but especially for early grade learners who by default are all developmentally inept. I mean, they're all over the place. Teachers can do the best job in the world. And depending on when the kid's ready to wake up and smell the coffee, that's when it all happens. And you can't change that and you shouldn't try, but you can, you know, if the back door is wide open and the front door's under construction, why stand at the front door and wait? You know, meet them at the back. Everybody's back there. All of your kids are back there. Language background, you know, experience background, they're all back there. Socioeconomic background, that's, that's where we can grab everybody and then move and go and incubate. And it's just, it's from a, from a brain's perspective, it's just, to me, this is the perfect place to do it is phonics because it, it, it's not like math or science. It eats our whole day, it permeates everything we do. We're looking at text all day long in K2 and we're making almost no sense. And we're giving the brain no way to, to engage when nothing we say is actually what they see happening. It just makes what we are trying to teach harder because we are going so slow. And as long as this is living in the world of repetitious skill-based practice, it's, it's always going to be slow. And therefore it's always going to be somewhat in opposition of the way the brain learns as a pattern making machine. So anyway, I, I find it fascinating, but Harvard does, I think that was also, you were talking about the need to know. I just wanted to throw that out there. Harvard has a whole, or at least did that learning consortium. They had a whole strand on um, not just emotion driven learning, but fostering a need to know before we start teaching information. And they use the analogy I use, which is if you start telling something to kids that nobody asks for, nobody wants, and nobody cares about, it's like throwing a ball to an empty field. You might get lucky and hit someone on the arm as they walk by, but the odds that they're going to catch it, hold it, keep it, retrieve it, give it back to you are a million to one. So you've got to have the catcher's mitt in place before you toss out what's important that you want them to hold. Um, and that's a whole strand of sessions that they have that are just on, you know, on that focus. So it's a fascinating conference if anybody ever gets a chance to attend. It's every year and it's usually on both posts, but I think in the last year or two, 
they've been virtual. So I don't know if they'll, they'll continue doing it on both coasts or just bounce back and forth like this year and next year. I have five more questions, but I also <laughs> recognize time constraints. So I will stop with them there because I think that's a great, great spot to stop. Um, and I'll be sure to link all that stuff into the episode notes. So if people are looking for that stuff, just check those out. Um, educational heroes, who has influenced your practice the most? I think it would probably be the principal who liked me the least. <laughs> um, because she never let me get away with doing anything that I couldn't justify in every direction that there was. And what that did was it, it, it forced me to think about everything like that as a teacher, like nothing would I just do because it said so. Sometimes I was right. Most of the time I was right in that I could justify it. And she was very, she was a brilliant woman. We had very different philosophies at the time on reading. Again, this was right at the end of the reading wars and you know everybody was entrenched in their philosophies and without science to really you know, give us a guidepost. And by science, I mean like a hard, you know, a copy of, a, of an image that shows areas that are engaged just so that you could start to streamline that path. We didn't have anything like that. But in the times that I couldn't really solidify or, or maybe she brought me to a point where I could see that there were certain things that maybe didn't connect with what I was doing in terms of what I was trying to do and maybe doing it with the best tool, uh, I made a lot of adjustments that were really good adjustments. So she just really, that learning how to think like that and having, and, and she was, I mean, she was actually a wonderful administrator. She just, um, she just never settled, which is great actually. If, if you see the value in wanting to think through those kinds of things, if you just want to do what page 13 says, you probably would have quit, you know, and not wanted to be bothered. But if you really always do want to make sure you're milking the maximum instructional value for the time you're spending, I mean, why would we do something if we're not going to, you know, why, what's the purpose? Like I, I always say, you know, if a teacher ever says, well, should I really tell them about the letters in love and the word August? You know, I mean, they don't even know the A yet. My thinking is, well, why are you up there? Read a magazine. Like you're just going to make it harder to teach the A if you point to it here and say one thing and point to it here and say something else, at least set the stage for the fact that like, hey, sometimes letters, they don't do what they what you think. Like when they don't make the sounds that they do here, it's because there's a secret you don't know. When they get together, they actually sometimes don't make the sounds they should. And it's because there's a grown up reading secret that you don't know. And that's what's happening in those words that you can't read. So if nothing else, you just give them a way to account for what they are seeing that doesn't look right. And then if nothing else, they know, oh, there must be one of those grown up reading secrets in that word. Cause I know the letters are supposed to do this, but they aren't. So that's why we have to have a way to, to make sense of what we're doing or, and to know that it's not just checking boxes. And I, I feel like, you know, she would have been the one that had I been telling kids that A says apple, ah, 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 A says acorn, A, 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 but then it's August 6th. So every day, for how many days now I'm going to have to follow that up with going, let's read this word now. Ready guys, August. Well, the only reason I'm practicing the reading is to give them a chance to reinforce these sound symbol connections, but clearly that's the opposite of the sound symbol connections I'm giving them. So she would pick up on something and I didn't do that, but if I had, she would never let that fly. And an administrator that lets you see things through that lens of a kid 
trying to follow a breadcrumb trail that clearly isn't there is invaluable because I think we play our tapes sometimes. We don't think through it from the bottom up. You know, we're always looking at it from the top down and we don't realize how little sense we can make in a lot of situations. And so it was really helpful for me because she just, it, it became a resonating voice in the back of my head. So I would say she was probably the educational hero um, just because she formed a framework of thinking that works with any anything that I'm trying to pull in or figure out. Um, and then as far as just, you know, researchers, a lot of the researchers that I tend to like the most aren't necessarily even educated. I mean, I, I think incredible, there are incredible education researchers, but I really like a lot of the neuro, um, the neuroscience researchers, Michael Posner's work on early. And I mean, that's something most educators wouldn't have thought about or looked at, but he started the ball rolling with a lot of um, the research on, you know, where, where the doorways are for kids at the earliest possible grade levels that maintain to, they continue to be the, our best doorways for kids as they move into upper grades and struggle because there's a lot of commonalities between let's say an English language learner in fifth grade versus a kindergartner in terms of learning to read versus a student that struggles with dyslexia. You know, whether you've got lots of holes in your foundation or you just don't have that, that development yet, either way, those higher level processing centers can't function at an optimal level because higher level processing requires not that it's just developed, but that you have information to process at a higher level. Kids that have holes in upper grades can't process at a higher level things that they don't have. So that foundation, when it's not strong, puts them in a similar position to a kindergartner who just doesn't have access to that developmental readiness yet. And if you're coming from a different language background, similarly, you're at ground zero when it comes to any kind of awareness or understanding of how to begin, you know, how to make sense of reading. So his work just, I think, grounded where these, it's like a movie theater where there are exit doors and you wanna know like, where are the doors? If I'm in this dark room, where are my access points? And, and I really thought that was fascinating. And also Mary Helen Imordino Yang, um, I'll say her name a little slower, <laughs> Mary Helen Imordino Yang. Um, I just find her work fascinating. It's all, you know, about finding ways to connect the most abstract, complex, non-meaningful, you know, skill sets to highly charged emotional feeling-based connections that kids can use to own it. Um, and, you know, and a lot of her work, again, it's on equity in that, you know, kids who are less likely to maybe internalize the table of elements are kids who don't have a lot of opportunities to read and to do things at home. And so they might not find an affinity for, um, you know, algebra or, you know, certain things might seem farther away for them to access because it's not as, as intuitive. It's not as, as obvious. The meaningful non-conscious learning isn't there. If you teach social studies, it's, it's an easy thing to play with. I mean, you can dress up like George Washington and, you know, talk about not maybe, you know, put ice on the, in bowls and have the kids put their feet in ice, but they can only have their socks on and talk about crossing the Delaware, you know, and how the uniforms were in tatters by the time the soldiers finally were ready. You can give kids a way to experience through these stories. History is story. So everything is lending itself to making your job easy to get kids to feel something. But if you teach algebra, <laughs> it's a lot harder. If you teach phonics, it's a lot harder. So I love that that's the monster she takes on because that's how important it is. When you can get kids to feel, you can get them to learn, not just some kids, all kids. And so many of our kids who could have a capacity for some of these fields 
aren't necessarily connected to them because they don't have a natural, obvious way in. And if we can get them to feel things that will give them that door, they might find that they're really strong in that area and then want to pursue it. So um, just on every level, again, I just, I like things that are open-ended and apply to so many things. I don't like small little pieces that pack a powerful punch necessarily, because if I want to focus on something, I want to be able to apply it and get the most bang for the buck out of it. So I tend to gravitate more to that type of research where you can just play in a thousand directions in your head with how many ways this could come in. One of the best compliments I can ever get in a session, and it might've been at CCIRA, is if somebody sits in your session by accident, they ended up there. They're like a high school math teacher and you're talking about K2, you know, letters and sounds. And they tell you right up front, oh, I must be, I thought this was, well, that's all right. I'll just stay, I'm already in here. And now you're thinking, oh gosh, I have to like, there has to be something I can say in the next hour that this poor person's not gonna feel like they just wasted their time sitting in. And the best thing is when someone like that can come up to you afterward and say, like you said, I don't know what these nasalizations and fricatives are, but I'll tell you what, that was a really fascinating idea in regard to what I do have to teach, which is this, you know, just knowing that these frameworks of, of, of thinking and, and of application of the science to that kind of construct of aligning with the brain system for learning that, that you can take that and put it into all these different buckets and have it be just as powerful but for different purposes, you know, that to me is, you know, that's what I love. That's what I love to do. And I know that I'm on the right track with that. When I, as I said, like when you can connect, talk about common denominators, I have very little in common with any math person because I'm so poor with math, but certainly not a high school math person. So when we can find that common ground, you know, it just really re reiterates that we can do that with our kids. I mean, we can, we can find these common grounds that are going to give everybody a way in and not keep this playing field so unlevel when it comes to these abstract phonic skills. You know, it's their pathway to being lifelong learners. If there aren't strong readers, I think after third grade, they spend more time working around what they can't read than actually plugging the holes so they can. And uh, we don't have a lot of time, you know, to make it or break it with these kids. So trial and error, it's not really an option when it comes to the code because um, it dictates really everything about the rest of their path. So it's just so important that we get it right, you know, at least as, as right as we can and as soon as we can. So That is very well said. Thank you so much, Katie. I never knew that science of reading and phonics could be so fun and entertaining. <laughs> I learned a lot, but I also enjoyed the conversation too. And Katie is going to be at our 2022 CCIRA conference on literacy. So I highly encourage you to go check out her session. Even if you're an algebra teacher, you'll learn something from her. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, that's right. And they're longer sessions, which I'm really excited about. So I'll be able to go a little slower than I am right now. And uh, I think I'm doing a few different ones. And so there'll be, you know, hopefully lots of, uh, lots of time to really get into some different, different points. So I'm really excited. So thank you so much for having me there and also for having me today. It was great. Take care. Thanks for listening to CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. To find out more about CCIRA, go to CCIRA.org. On CCIRA.org, you can join as a member or find great resources 
Like our professional development blog, which posts every Tuesday and has a variety of guest writers on an awesome selection of topics. CCIRA is a professional organization of educators and community members dedicated to the promotion and advancement of literacy. We also have a Twitter account at Colorado Reading. You can find us on Instagram at CCIRA underscore Colorado Reading. Or you can find us on Facebook, where we also have a members-only group that we're trying to build. And our Facebook account is CCIRA Colorado Reading. We'd love to hear more from you. And again, if you're looking for new content, please send any questions or things you'd be interested in seeing from CCIRA to CCIRAvideo at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.